Welcome to the Whistleblower Newsroom. I'm Christina Borgeson. The hardest thing for a high-level whistleblower who has been brutally attacked to do is talk about their experience, particularly when it is still fresh. In the case of my guest today, it's exponentially more traumatic because his job was to help save the lives of millions, and he was brutally shut down trying to do just that. It is impossible to explain how stressful the experience of finding yourself being attacked by the very institution that assigned you to bring your expertise to bear on a problem, especially when millions of lives are at stake, only to find yourself being publicly maligned and marginalized with nowhere to turn while the life-saving information you brought to the table is suppressed because it is inconvenient for high-level officials in corrupt agencies with agendas you didn't even know existed. If any whistleblower in the world has the goods on Dr. Anthony Stephen Fauci, current medical advisor to the President of the United States, the NIH and CDC, it is Dr. Paul Elias Alexander. What I mean by the goods is that he experienced firsthand the malfeasance in which they engaged to suppress life-saving information during the COVID pandemic. In his recent article titled, quote, how Fauci, Francis Collins, NIH and CDC worked with deep state Washington DC bureaucracy to cancel and silence me, threatening to fire me if I did not resign the same day, Trump is powerless, unquote. Dr. Alexander describes his shocking experience in detail. So who is he? Paul Elias Alexander, PhD, is a global expert on COVID-19 with a master's degree in epidemiology from the University of Toronto, a master's in evidence-based medicine from Oxford, and a doctorate in evidence-based medicine and research methods from McMaster's University in Canada. He has published on COVID treatment and other COVID-related scientific publications. In 2008, he worked for the World Health Organization as an epidemiologist in their regional European office in Denmark and worked for the Government of Canada as an epidemiologist for roughly 12 years. Dr. Alexander worked for the Infectious Diseases Society of America as their evidence synthesis meta-analysis systematic review guideline development lead trainer. He was serving as a COVID pandemic evidence synthesis advisor to the World Health Organization and the Pan American Health Organization in Washington when he got the call to work for the Trump administration as a senior advisor on COVID pandemic policy for health and human services, three months after the COVID pandemic task force headed by Fauci was formed. Welcome, Dr. Alexander. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure and an honor that you have me on your show. You are working for the World Health Organization, right, as an evidence uh, gatherer and synthesizer on the COVID pandemic, and then you were called to by the Trump administration to go work for them. They reached out to me mainly because my area is an evidence-based medicine specialist, a research methodologist. Um, uh, is a very niche area, and the principal training program, the doctorates, come out of McMaster in, in Hamilton, Canada. I did my doctorate under Dr. Gordon Guyatt, who's the founder of evidence-based medicine. Around January of 2020, when COVID began to emerge in China, 
um, the initial reports that we all were getting, yourself, myself, scary reports um, of things in Wuhan, Hubei um, province. And then we were getting reports of these deaths and stuff accumulating in Lombardia, Italy. All of us were getting that January, mid, beginning of February. Um, WHO asked me to be their consultant for COVID as a pandemic advisor. What they really wanted was they were flat-footed, like everyone in the world, including the White House, including the British government, the US government. Nobody knew what the hell was going on. So they wanted people quickly to help them understand any data or any science or anything to do with this. At that point, it was called coronavirus. It was not COVID at that point, COVID-19. So basically, I was the person providing WHO a glimpse of what this new thing was coming out of China, trying to get the messaging out to the world from WHO and um, trying to see, well, you know, are there any treatments available? What is the situation? Um, how, how, would, how would they prepare countries to deal with things around surge capacity? How would you set up makeshift hospitals outside? All of those types of things that WHO would put out. Um, I was helping them trying to gather all of the evidence. Um, whilst doing that, <clears throat> I got a call around the beginning of April. I think it's the end of March, beginning of April. The United States had already set the, um, the, white, the task force made up of Fauci, Burks, uh, Redfield, Hahn, Adams, uh, Girard. They had already put out in place, headed by Alex Azar at HHS. Um, so we, you, me, and the rest of the world were watching this every day on the news. Every day, President Trump would come out with his six or seven people, and they would stand up there, and, and Dr. Burks would show us all the epicurves on the chart. Right, I was watching that just like you. And then um, one day around, I believe, the end of March, early April, I got a call. My wife told me, Paul, there's somebody saying that they're calling on behalf of Washington. And uh, so I thought this was actually it was a joke, like I was being punked. And they said, no, it's uh, the Trump administration people, and they want to speak to you. The people on the other line, the person was talking to me and saying, look, um, they want to know if you'd be interested in joining, coming to the table and um, adding your expertise. And my first question was, was, was this a joke? I wanted to know. I said, but they must have other people that you could turn to. You know what I mean? Because you're talking about working with people like Fauci and all these people. And they said, well, actually, the president doesn't trust these people. So I was kind of shocked. So I said, well, he does, I don't even know the president. They said, well, the thing is, your writings and the way you speak, he act, the, the administration will benefit from somebody like you because you are political in the sense of, you talk about scientific things, but it's clear that you have a grasp of the global politics and the American policy. Well, I do because it interests me. But, but uh, he wants, they, we want, this is what he said, we want someone to come that could give us a sense of what's happening, that what the task force is telling you over office. They want to understand it. They want to understand it in a layman term. If you could, if you could be that bridge and um, they trust you, so I said, but they don't even know me. And I don't even know them. They said, well, actually, they trust you. So, and you had written some stuff they found very interesting and uh, you kind of controversial. That's the exact word. So would you be interested? So I said, so this is real. I said, well, yeah, of course, this is real. 
you know, we want to know if you can join, you, you, you will be going to the Health and Human Services. And when you get there, we'll, we'll, we'll clarify the nature of what your job is going to be, blah, blah, blah. I arrived very early in May. I started in the bureaucracy at Health and Human, Human Services the next day. Health and Human Services, which is the main building and the main agency that all of the other agencies of the government fall under. So the FDA, the CDC, uh, NIAID, NIH, they all report into HHS. HHS is the umbrella organization. And Health and Human Services is situated on 200 Independence Avenue. That's the main building. All of those agencies have a sub-office in that Health and Human Services. So on a day-to-day -day basis, my office was on the sixth floor and the people I dealt with, the secretary and the assistant secretary of Health and Human Services, on a day-to-day -day basis, Redfield, Han, all of these people would be there because they would either be in, in, the, in the White House or the Capitol building or that building that I was in to their sub-offices for meetings and stuff and dealing with the secretary, secretary is are. So I interacted a lot with these people, particularly um, uh, Brett Girard, who was heading up the testing arm of the task force. Almost daily with Dr. Redfield, I go to, new, to know Dr. Redfield. You know, a lot of people have their own working relationships with him in the past, with HIV and other things. They all have their views and their likes and dislikes. My interactions with Redfield, I mean, I had interactions COVID-related, this pandemic, but I'm talking from a personal point of view, a very good man. I realize God-fearing, very religious person. And I'm not even talking about, I'm a Christian, but if he was a Muslim, if he was Jewish, I'm just talking about he was a man of faith. Um, good person. Um, Dr. Hahn, good. I had really good relationships with him, Stephen Hahn. I was very disappointed at the end when he took a position with Moderna. I felt that that was a serious violation and conflict of interest because he regulated Moderna up to the day he left. Now, how could you be the, the, the commissioner of the FDA and regulate the approval emergency use authorization. I am a very matter of fact person. I see it how I see it. And I like to deal with the data and the science. I don't wanna deal in conspiracy theories. The bottom line though is a lot of these people were good people, but a lot of wrong things were done. Between April to July, two of the greatest public health disasters that will go down in history happened under President Trump. Three, one, allowing Fauci and Burks to lead lockdowns. That hurt President Trump catastrophically. I don't think today he understands that. A lot of his people were hurt. People lost lives. A lot of children committed suicide. A lot of people lost their businesses, their homes. A lot of people killed themselves in America. We knew the data. And I don't blame him. I think he was greatly misled. I think he trusted those people. He trusted all of those people in that task force and he grew to distrust them. Did they think that you could somehow influence Blix and Fauci or bring other information in that would make them see the light? The demands on me was based on whatever the secretary, assistant secretary would want, based on the 
plans and priorities as, as they evolve. And remember, from around June so, um, the government was kicking into an election campaign too, election mode. So we had to have things very tight in the sense of keeping the science away from the politics. And that was a very difficult thing to do too, because I was attached partly to the communication department and the communication department was trying to get the proper message out. Yet you had to work to keep that separate. So we worked tightly with the ethics commissioner. What message were you trying to get out? Before I answer that question, a lot of people don't know this, that when I, when I arrived in DC, my bosses met with me immediately. The first day in office, I said, Paul, you know, we've gotten wind that the bureaucracy um, at the highest levels of the Washington DC bureaucracy. So I grew to know that there is a deep state and the deep state, people think, oh, it's these kind of clandestine looking people in masks or spacesuits walking around in a dungeon somewhere. No, the deep state is the bureaucracy of Washington. The deep state is those career officials who work in government for 20, 30 years. They see presidents come and go. Come and go. Yeah, they think they own the government and that they run the government. And, and I have had discussions with State Department people who told me, Trump is just a visitor here. We run this thing. I was told that the bureaucracy decided I will not complete my hire. So the paperwork um, that was needed to establish me within the administration. At first I was gonna be a political appointee. And then the decision was that I would work for the government as a federal employee. And, um, but the deep state decided that they would not complete my hire. So, so um, I was told, you have to make a decision right now. I had just rented a condominium for a year. I had to sign a one year lease, almost 3000 bucks a month. And I had, I, I had to resign my position at WHO because the ethics commissioner met with me and said, what people didn't know also is in the beginning, the Trump administration, I got this cleared, wanted me to keep my position with WHO PAHO. And PAHO wanted me to keep my position with the Trump administration. Because my particular expertise is in evidence-based medicine and research and data and science, because this pandemic was unfolding for both sides, the Trump administration and WHO, whatever there is a commonality to both, I could share with both. What I can't share, I can't. So nothing with the government I could divulge to WHO, et cetera. Well, we understood that. But at a certain point, because of some things that were being said to me by WHO people that I explained to the ethics commissioner, it was becoming problematic. And I was advised I have to resign my position. So I had resigned my position. I had no income from WHO. And so I had can you not talk about what it was that WHO was saying to you that was problematic? I'll give you an example. Trump was trying to withdraw, not trying. He was withdrawing, um, uh, removing the United States from WHO in terms of its, I think you saw that. It was on the news. That was things that was playing out every day. Um, I got into in the middle of that just from the point of view that I was working at WHO. So one day I got a call from people saying, um, can you tell us if there are any WHO senior people working for the Trump administration? 
this was the administration asking me to verify it for them because the White House was putting out a message that we are, we are withdrawing from WHO. There'll be no WHO people here. Can you explain to the audience why uh, Trump wanted to withdraw from the WHO? I think it had a lot to do with the America. The United States provided so much of the funding over the years. And there was always this contention that the United States wasn't being properly served by its own interest at WHO. And that... Um, he wanted to withdraw particularly because of the situation that was unfolding with COVID, that there was a suboptimal reporting of information. WHO was disingenuous and misleading in the beginning when WHO said that there was no human-to-human -human transmission coming out of China. That was a lie. WHO was deceitful then. China- Why? Why did they do that? I guess all of these things would be investigated, and that's when we, we are calling for constant investigations because at the end of the day, we need to know what actually happened here in this situation. But when China came out and said that there's no human-to-human -human transmission, that was, that was misleading. That was, that was not true. But then when WHO came out, the director of WHO and then the agency itself to applaud China for its response um, and saying that there's no human-to-human -human transmission, that was actually um, not factual either. That was, a, that was, I would have- Do you to think say, they know that? Who? The people at WHO who announced that? Of course. That? Of course. So, so we will need to know at some point, why would they front for China at that point when Remember, what they were saying was shaping the response from the world, including America. And also at that point, Fauci went on about two or three different talk shows where he interviewed and he said, Americans don't have to worry about this. This is no big deal, this, this virus and stuff. So I actually applaud President Trump because I always felt he should have locked down from China earlier. But he was dealing with messaging coming from China, messaging coming from WHO and messaging coming from Fauci, those three together at the same time, basically saying no human to human transmission and this is not a problem. So had he gone along with that fully, he would have never locked down from China then. And I believe it was January 31st, 2020, he made the decision to lock down. That was a tremendous decision, a great decision. He should have locked down earlier, but he went against Fauci to do that. He went against WHO and he went against China, which I thought was a tremendous step that he took. A lot of bravery. Um, remember at that point, you had Nancy Pelosi, you had Biden, all of these starting to go on interviews, calling him xenophobe, all sorts of stuff, because that decision to lock down. When he locked down on Europe, I actually thought he should have locked down about two to three weeks before, based on the epidemiological situation. But I was not president, and that was his decision. And he but you, you advised that, right? Now, I, I also want to remind the, I, I want to tell the audience, too, because not everybody has read your article, that because they did not want you to be, that, that you worked basically for free after you were yeah. brought into this situation, you worked for free because they weren't giving you any kind of status. I was told bluntly on my first day, that it's unusual for a scientist, somebody like yourself to work 
in this division here at Health and Human Services at this level um, and have this close link to the secretary, the assistant secretary, a, a direct and a dotted line reporting to the White House. So it was felt that, um, that uh, it was almost like an advantage that the administration had. Now, I didn't come there from a political point of view. I was just as like a, from a scientific point of view, and that's the only role I wanted to play. But I was told that the bureaucracy decided that they would not complete my hire, so they would frustrate me. And I was told right away that you're going to have to make the decision, Paul, whether you're going to stick this out. We're going to work behind the scenes daily. Um, I was told by my bosses that they will work with the chief of staff, Mark Meadows, and the White House daily to try and sort out my hire situation, etc. But this went on and on and on. And every day I would come dressed in my suit. They gave me a oh government laptop, cell phone, everything I needed. I even got my badge and the level of security I needed to access. And no money, no money. Right. Well, after a while, then I had another meeting where I was told that um, the bureaucracy doesn't understand how come you're still here. So they've decided now that they're not going to. Because I was told every day that your pay will be settled and you'd get your back pay. But then after a while, they said, well, they've decided they're not going to complete your pay so that you're not going to be on strength. So you're not going to be paid. No back pay, no pay. And um, well, of course, my wife was outraged by that and myself too, because we were paying rent. Um, we bought a bunch of furniture. Washington is expensive. Very. We bought furniture with us. Etc. And um, so I was explained that they're going to keep trying behind the scenes to see if they could sort out that. But if you continue from here on, Paul, is really you doing it because you want. And I said, well, look, I love America. I'm a pandemic specialist. We are in the throes of this crisis. I'm here. Let us go day by day and see, get this rectified. And just, you know, give me my back pay, blah, blah, blah. It's okay. I will, I will tough it out. And um, it just kept going on and on. And uh, one day, <clears throat> I was in a meeting, uh, the Operation Warp Speed, just so I'll tell you without divulging too much, um, one of the flaws in the HHS building was designated the, the headquarters for Operation Warp Speed. The complete vaccine development program took place in the floor actually above my office. The entire floor was... Converted into a military operation. I know because I, I was there, I went there routinely. It was most of it was soldiers. A lot of them were scientific soldiers who were scientists, but they were in full military garb with weapons and everything. Because this was their military operation. The military were involved mainly because of the logistic aspect. So when we had meetings, the meetings that I was allowed to attend. There would always be the vaccine developers like Moderna, Pfizer, et cetera, people from justice, lawyers. There would be um, secretary, assistant secretary, whomever, but there would be tons of military because they were involved. They were listening into the conversations and partaking because as Operation Warp Speed unfolded, the military had to manage the logistics, the distribution of the vaccine. And the, the program actually was a very unique program. I was against it. I went on record saying only 
only for high-risk elderly people if you bring this vaccine, but for nobody else. And I adjusted my position as I saw the data quickly when the vaccine a year and a month ago. So to my colleagues, to everyone who's I made my position known that I was not somebody in support of them because of the fact that I understood that you can't take a 12 to 15 year process and boil it down into three to four months. This is an example where President Trump trusted and he was misled because today, Everyone understands. We didn't need a year to pass for you to, to understand. We had this data very early on, just based on the submissions from Pfizer and Moderna to the FDA for the emergency use authorization. If you looked at the data, you could see that they cooked the data by the presentation of the 95% relative risk reduction. When you calculated, you saw the absolute risk was actually less than 1%. That means that, that that this vaccine really conferred no benefit. Then they also in the submission stated that the vaccine is a non-sterilizing vaccine, does not prevent infection, replication, or transmission. Um, all it does is reduces symptoms. So it, it begged the question immediately, then why would you bring a, a vaccine like this? And then basic immunology would tell you that if you brought a non-sterilizing vaccine that does not cut the chain of transmission, and you roll that out in the midst of a pandemic, you will, not me, you will drive the emergence of variants. So very early on, we said, I started to write, my colleagues, Dr. McCullough, Dr. Malone, Dr. Good, Fandon Bosch, Dr. Reich, uh, Dr. Tenenbaum, we started to write and we were speaking out clear that if this vaccine continues, we are going to drive variants every one to two months. And the danger with that is there could be a lethal variant that could emerge by chance. Exactly what we said, especially led by people like Dr. Eden and Dr. Vanden Bosch, is happening. We are seeing variants emerging every two months or so, highly infectious. In other words, today, if you want this pandemic to continue for 100 more years, all we need to do is keep these vaccines as is and continue vaccinating the public. You will keep the infections ongoing and variants emerging. These vaccines have failed. They are ineffective and they are harmful. And there's no other way I can say it. That's why in the beginning, I was trying to say the two of the greatest, three of the greatest public health disasters happened under Trump. One, he allowed Burks and Fauci to lead lockdowns that killed people. Two, he brought Operation Warp Speed. He, mis he was misled and he trusted. He did not understand that you cannot squeeze the inefficiency out of the manufacturer process, the time, and expect to bring a safe vaccine. No, he thought they could, but he didn't understand that the time, those 12 to 15 years, yes, there's a lot of red tape and bureaucracy in, in there. When you finished phase one, you then have to apply to go to phase two, and put in a lot of paperwork to FDA and the oversight committee, et cetera. That's there for a purpose because you actually monitor the vaccine across time in the research group. So you're looking at rare adverse events that take time to unfold. Because you see the unique thing about Operation Warp Speed is as they began the vaccine trials, day one, day one of 
Moderna and Pfizer vaccine trials, they began manufacturing the vaccine. So day one of the trial was day one of manufacture. And at the end of that day, those vaccines that were manufactured without the results were actually placed on trucks that the military was overseeing. That was the role of the military, the logistics. So we were running the trial, manufacturing and placing it on trucks, refrigerated trucks on the same day. That's Operation War. That's why it happened so quickly. And the people probably doesn't understand what Operation Warp Speed. That's the warp speed. We did all three, knowing, knowing there was an agreement that the public would front pay for everything for all of the vaccine companies up front, knowing that of the 12 or 15 vaccine companies that got billions, that most of them would fail. One or two may work. All of those that failed would not be junk. They would not be brought forward. But the ones that were successful were the ones that would be implemented and rolled out. And that's Pfizer and Moderna. But the results that they submitted, I would say, was fraudulent. I'm not the only one saying it. And I'm, I've been on record now, every time I speak publicly and I write, that at the end of this, I want every single person, including Pfizer CEO Bola and the CEO of Moderna Bansel, I want them investigated properly as to every decision they made with the FDA, the CDC, the NIH, and the NIAD. Every single person, Fauci, Burks, everybody. I want them in a proper court, proper legal proceeding, proper inquiry. Because if these people made sound, sensible decisions, I, I want to thank them and they get their pensions and they live their life as normal people, scientists, whatever they are. But if our inquiries, public inquiries, in a proper legal forum show that their decision-making was reckless, was not based on the underlying science and data, and that their decisions ended in the loss of life, that we costed lives, that people died because of the lockdowns and the vaccines, I want these people in prison. I don't care who you are. I want you to go to jail, but I want it examined properly. We need to look at every single decision they made, particularly the decisions, who made those decisions to not use early treatment antivirals and corticosteroids that costed so many lives. Hundreds of thousands of people are dead because of that. We need to know who tied the hands of the doctors, who in those state licensing boards. We need to know who they are and put them under oath and examine it. I'm, I'm very curious about the military <clears throat> going along with this, the military doctors, because, you know, they had that experience with anthrax, that anthrax vaccine that was rushed through and that created all these problems for all those kids, you know, when they took it. Yeah. Who, and there's still... And, and that's a generational thing because they had kids that, that uh, it was horrible. It was a nightmare. Didn't any of them ask questions? I don't know who was involved in Warp Speed that was also involved in those past, um, because I know what you're talking about. You're talking about from Desert Storm, correct? Yes. Yes, that was a very um, sad event because, because we harmed a lot of our good military. And that's, that's something I have to be on record with you. I want to say it. I believe our police and military, particularly our veterans, are probably the best people in the world. I've always said I am 1% of them. 
I wish I was, I wish I actually had the chance to serve. I understand the majesty of these people and the, the goodness of them. And uh, I want to say here that the vaccine should have never been mandated. It should have only been offered to the police and the military because we do not know the long-term implications. We have many military and police right now vaccinated. And from what we are seeing, the myocarditis and all of the other health implications and the deaths, it is very worrisome because we don't know what's going to unfold. I think the sad reality is that you could be so trusting, yet be so misled. And I think, I think between the lockdowns and Operation Warp Speed and, and um, Alex Cesar, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, in, I think in February of 2020, when he granted liability protection under the PrEP Act, I believe it's the PrEP Act, where he gave the vaccine developers and all involved liability protection. That was a catastrophic, devastating failure for all of the people who would be vaccinated today. Do you well, think he did that knowing that it, it could be catastrophic? I wouldn't say that about Isar because then that would be a, a, a malevolent um, step. Uh, um, my interactions with him, this is a, this to me, I, I knew he came from Eli Lilly and he was a, he was a drug person and all of that uh, vaccine into that farmer. But my interaction would have been poor, smart guy, etc. But whomever made that decision, because remember, these people, um, particularly the heads of these agencies, they don't just make a decision in a vacuum. They have large advisory boards and stuff, they have meetings and they give, they themselves, same way Trump was advised, ill-advised, I believe Azar was ill-advised. I will not say something nefarious. He did something nefarious. What I would say is the consequence of that liability protection. Some people would say, well, you know, the vaccine developer was taken. Here's the key here that the public needs to understand. <clears throat> Somebody would say, well, if I'm a vaccine developer or a drug manufacturer and I'm going to bring something to market, um, if I could get protection so that if, if it fails, et cetera, that I don't have liability. That would entice me and incentivize me to do the research. But remember, what the public needs to understand now is, is our, and they had no right to give this liability protection. And you would say, but why, Paul? Well, simply because this whole Operation Warp Speed was front-loaded. I explained to you that, that, we, that they did the experiment as Pfizer was running their trial, they actually was developing and manufacturing the drug. Whether it worked or not, if they found out downstream it was devastatingly harmful and no way would they touch that, that would just end up in the river. I don't mean in the real river. I mean it would be destroyed. But, but once it was, as they ran the trial, they developed the vaccine and they put it on trucks. All was done at the same time. So the first one to show a signal of benefit, that would be the one rolled out on the trucks out to all of the CVS and given out to the doctor. That's how they did Operation Warp Speed. Now, the key issue here is the government of the United States paid all of the vaccine developers upfront. So when they were running their trials, it was not you, you manufacture 100 million doses and then we will pay you the $2 billion. They were paid the $2 billion 
in a program, Operation Warp Speed, that as they ran the trial, they got the money up front. They were, they were manufacturing the vaccine and putting it on trucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If they got no signal, those vaccines would be junk. But they didn't have to give the money back. That's the key. The American taxpayer was on the hook from the beginning. Never was the vaccine developer on the hook. And that's why yeah. I'm saying, that's why I'm saying ESAL should have never given them liability protection because they had, they even got their money up front. Yep. So whether, whether their vaccine actually was put into any arms, they were paid. The American taxpayer was the loser in all of this. Why? Because in the end now, after all of what we just said, the vaccine is ineffective and harmful, not properly safe. And it's not just me saying it. The data is saying it. No. I wrote an article in Brownstone with about 50 studies. The most updated version shows the vaccine. There's no difference between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated in terms of viral load, propensity to transmit, etc. In fact, the UK data, the Scottish data shows that the vaccinated is at high risk of hospitalization and death. So the vaccine is a problem. Anyhow you want to look at it. The American people were snookered because, because they paid for something up front that has turned out to fail. And they paid for something up front that was not properly examined as to safety. I am against these vaccines, definitely in children. I'm on, I, I go on Fox News and say this, and, and I get stressed too because for saying it the way I do. They don't like it, but I say it as I see it. Now, here's the key. You have a situation where you are giving children a vaccine that confers no benefit, none. And um, uh, recently, I saw about two days ago, a submission, Pfizer reported that it's going to submit to the FDA for approval for 5 to 11 year olds for a booster. Now, what insanity. This is like criminality in my point of view. The, the, the CEO of Pfizer, he went on the news a few months ago and said, McCollum, Malone, Vanden Bosch, me. He referred to all of us. He said, you all are the criminals. Because He used the word because you are raising information that, are, that is causing vaccine hesitancy. He called us criminals because we are questioning. He should have to prove that in court because if he had to prove it in court, he'd have to prove that you were wrong. But he can't. If that was proven in court, He'd be the one who, yes. who would be proven the criminal. I really resonate with your experience. We're not finished talking about that because I had that experience when I was working as a network producer mm -hmm. and I was trying to get the truth out on something and the whole system came down on me. The FBI yes. came after me. I mean, it was, it was a nightmare and you're there in this institution and in your case, it's even more intense because you're trying to save lives. Mm -hmm. And you, this institutional, you know, corrupt institutional uh, machine is machine. Coming, coming down on you. Mm -hmm. And it's traumatic. It is it's very traumatic. traumatic because yeah. you feel like people's lives are in your hands. And all of a sudden, this is it. You're just being, you know, and, and, I, I just, I couldn't, first of all, I couldn't believe that you actually, like, you did this without pay for all this time. Yes. And then, and then 
Why did the Defense Department step in to pay your bill? It became, I suppose, at a high level, they are known that here's Dr. Alexander, because sitting down in all these meetings, and I would make contributions to the discussions. The military got when the people in that meeting, Operation Wall Street, that I was not being paid by the bureaucracy. And I think they were angry. And they said that they had a pot of money somewhere they would find and that they would begin paying me. So when I got my first paycheck, <clears throat> was from the Department of Defense. And uh, so I wasn't too sure at that point my status because, because at that point I then became a federal employee. But I still, even today, didn't know if I moved from being a health and human services federal employee to a Department of Defense employee. But I went to the HR who handles the PN and said, okay, I saw I got a first paycheck. <clears throat> what about the back money? And they laughed at me and said, no, just be very happy. That they think. So I didn't get any of the back money. And um, soon after that, well, we had all of the issues with, um, then I had my running with Fauci and the, and the NIH. The long and short of it was um, the White House, because of the election campaign and President Trump was on the stump. And he was fighting the task force daily around June, July, August to open the society, open up and open schools. Because we were getting a lot of reports, particularly from the different states, Las Vegas, etc., that many children were committing suicide. So President Trump was very angry and he was angry with the CDC and the union, the teachers unions, and he wanted them to open schools. So the messaging from the White House came to myself and to people in my unit and said, okay, Fauci and Burks and all these people have been going on all these talk shows. From here on, we, we need to know what they are going to be discussing, not to curtail them. They are free to say what they want. But we wanted to align with the messaging for the president. So at least it wouldn't be confusing to the public. So if the president is on the stump this week, pushing the reopen of schools. If they're going on CNN and MSNBC or whatever, they should be talking about opening schools. So, so around that time, an email came from the NIH and Fauci and those people to my department and well, a bunch of other departments saying, they're so-and-so. This is the NIH and Dr. Fauci. Dr. Fauci is going on MSNBC and CNN or whomever this weekend, something like that. And, um, to discuss the closure of schools and masks. A ton of people in NIH and NIAD and CC, but only high level people got it, Fauci, everybody. So I'm looking at this thing and remember, <clears throat> I'm on top of all of the science and the evidence because I'm reading stuff daily. That was my job to be on top. So if, if, if the secretary, the assistant secretary, anybody asks me anything, I need to be able to inform them. I didn't know if it was going directly into the Oval Office. I didn't know what was going on. I just need to be their scientific input. So I read it and I said, but this is insane because Fauci and they can't be talking about keeping school closed or masking kids. Because at that point, we had already accumulated a lot of evidence. There was a strong study came out of Sweden. with looking at about 2 million kids, 0 to 16, that showed with no masks and no lockdowns, there were no deaths. There was research out of Germany in healthy kids. No deaths, no mass in school. There was a, a good study out of the, the French Alps by an author, I remember, Danis, Danis et al., that showed that this symptomatic kid, nine years old, I believe, 
went around to three different schools in France and exposed about 120 teachers and students. And not one of those children or teachers got infected. So we had the evidence that, that children don't spread it, et cetera. We had the evidence children didn't even get infected. So I sat down and I penned an email back to the NIH and the NIAD and Fauci and they said, look, um, it is evident here that NIH and Dr. Fauci, they are not contemporary with the science. The science shows that children are at low risk. They don't get infected readily. They don't spread it to kids. They don't even take it home, unlike seasonal influenza. So Dr. Fauci, if Dr. Fauci doesn't understand, doesn't, doesn't know the data or the science, I have all of the, the science available here. So I attached about 15 studies and I said, Dr. Fauci and NIH, please read these studies to abreast yourself of the science that schools should not remain closed and children are not to be masked. These are the studies. Well, from there, it, 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 it became like an insane asylum because I started to get responses back from the NIH that basically almost outraged that I would challenge them and Dr. Fauci and basically say that they're not aware of the science, which they were not. So, and I gave them the science. About a few days after that, there was a high-level meeting in HHS building where a bunch of different scientists came and some from NIH, some from CDC, et cetera. And after the meeting, a couple of scientists, they wanted to talk to me and meet me personally. I was in the meeting and they walked with me to the elevator to say, no, Paul, we've been listening to you on all of the teleconferences. We know who you are and stuff. And we so admire um, how forthright you are. We actually believe and support a lot of stuff. They kind of also told me that they don't actually believe anything that Fauci says, and they worked in NIH mm -hmm. and NIAD. And, but basically what they were saying is that because of that particular email that you sent and that you call out the NIH and Fauci open in front of all of those senior people, that the bureaucracy is going to destroy you. And the exact words is, I mean, I'm not going to think, they say, but they're going to cut your B off. You're going to You're going to cut your balls off. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that you will not be able to work in Washington and they're going to work now to slander and smear your name so that um, you'll be fired and you will not be able to work and your career is done. So I actually was asking them, what can I do to reverse that? I will even, I told them standing there, I said, I will even apologize to Dr. Fauci. And they said, well, the problem is it's already done. They have taken communications from you in the past and they've leaked one line to the press, all the press, and they are going to come up with a narrative in about four days. They were telling me it's done. They knew what was happening. In about four days, they're going to start smearing you in the media. And they, go, and they told me the line. What it was was in a prior communication, I was telling some colleagues that um, because children are at such low risk and children have such an effective innate immune system, we shouldn't take children off the battlefield by locking them away. We should let healthy children be naturally and harmlessly exposed and that their immune systems could deal with the virus and they will actually become naturally immune. Well, what they leaked was just the part where I said, um, let children be in, they rearranged. Be infected. Be infected. Yep. So, and they started to say that this Trump official wants your children to become infected and die. And that's what was leaked. And, and it was there my nightmare began 
And I didn't know how far they were going to go in the center. The leaking and stuff was to smear and slander, but they were actually moving to fire me. And how they did it was, um, whilst I was dealing with the insanity of the press and dealing with people outside the office, following home, calling on myself, because I don't know, they, they leaked all our numbers, everything. Um, when I, w one day soon after that, I was had to go to the office. Um, I was informed by the HR bureaucracy and people in my office that by four o'clock, four one that day, I had to either formally resign or I'll be fired by the bureaucracy. And that if they fired me, if they fired, and this was because of Fauci, if they fired me, they're gonna put it out in the press that I was terminated. Um, they're giving me the option of resigning. And um, so that way it will look better and they will put out an advisory in the White House and they'll put out an advisory in the press that the services of doctors are no longer needed. And so for that whole day, it was me at home and then me when I went to the office dealing with them, I had to take back my laptop. Basically, it was a very stressful day because at a certain point of that day, I had two cell phones, my personal phone, and I believe the work phone I was using at that point. I had the White House on one phone and the HR bureaucracy on the next. And the White House is telling me they know with the White House liaison at that point, because we have a liaison between HHS and the White House. Their job is the link between, if you want to speak directly to the over or to anybody, you go through the liaison if you don't have a direct link. That person was in this discussion. They are saying at first that you have to talk to the White House. And I got a call. The, 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 the call, they told me that the decision was made that we are going to move you from HHS now directly into the White House as, an, as a direct advisor. We know there's a move to fire you today or get your, term, your resignation. We do not want you to submit a, a resignation and we are going to instruct the HR to make no move to terminate you. So whilst they're telling me that on the phone, the HR people, they told me there's a lawyer here, there's a justice person here, there's the HR director here, and we want you to send your resignation now or be fired. Uh, and, but they could hear the White House. I have both of them, on, like they're almost on speaker. So then they're telling me on the other phone and the White House can hear, and they start, the people on this phone are like screaming at me to put on the phone on HR. They're telling me, put it down and take no more calls. They actually instructed me, we are telling you Stay home today. Don't leave your home. Don't go into the office and take no calls from the HR director. Don't listen to anything they're telling you about terminating you. We're going to handle it. The HR people are listening to this and they're telling me now, screaming at me, that the White House and the Oval Office, they have no power. That we, the HR, run things. They even went as far as telling me on the phone that President Trump, have no say in this because without me saying who I'm talking to you here, I'm talking to people 
in the office. Right there, right there. In the White House office, okay. And, mm -hmm. and they're telling me the president has no power. We are going to fire you today. If you want, you resign and we'll give you, they even said, we'll give you two weeks salary. And that was the discussion. And wow. we went back and forth. And um, wow. basically, basically, they said, uh, um, we want you to not to listen to what the White House people are telling you. And the White House people is telling me that it was the most stressful I can't I would imagine. say all of my life because, because I didn't know what to do at that point. I didn't know who to listen to. And I didn't know when I leave my building, if the media would be there because I was dealing with that constantly. And, and when I put down the phone on the White House people and then I put on the phone on the HR, I told my wife, I said, I, I am going to resign because, because I can't take this kind of pressure because, because you need to understand for the whole period before that, maybe a week before that, I was being barraged, but not just me, other people like Dr. Atlas, who was in the press, etc. So we are being, and let me explain to you how it goes. I get a call from White House telling me, you cannot speak to the press. That you are forbidden from interviewing. You can't speak to anybody. You just have to ride this out, Paul. Now, I don't know where you are, if you've worked in DC, it is the most coldest, brutal place ever. Yeah. And um, you know nobody, nobody's, and all of a sudden, all of the people that I worked with, I would call them and no one would take my call. So like I'm almost, they isolated me and it was a devastating feeling. It was the worst feeling because I didn't, I didn't want you to help me anymore. I already made my decision, I'm gonna resign. But I wanted somebody to say, hello, Paul, how are things going? Because you, 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 you like, it was, it was, I can't explain how alone it felt. And I said, why wouldn't somebody just answer a phone and say, Paul, everything will be okay, blah, blah. Nothing, zero. It was, it was very brutal. It was brutal. And they even went as far as say, just write it out. I got a call from someone and say, just write it out for two, three more days, Paul. This is Washington. A new story is going to hit the news line and you are no longer going to be on the news on the front. And, and I said, but I don't think I could go any further. I can't. And that's when I made the decision to quit, to not to resign, to tender my resignation so that they wouldn't put that they terminated me. But just then, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. And right as she passed, I saw it come across breaking news. I got a call from people in the, in the White House saying, Exactly what we told you, Paul. In about 10 minutes, you will see you are no longer in the news. It is only going to be about Justice Bader. And exactly as they said, it was over. But the damage had already been done. Washington just being there gives you the willies. You know, because, because it's a place of just government, political, you, you can't trust anyone, etc. I'll be blunt. I have had meetings where people came to my office and say, we want to have a discussion with you about something. Pandemic related, we can't talk about it in this building. HHS, which is a government secure building. We need to go on the Washington Mall. Can you meet us there at 1210? So I would leave the building and I would meet them on the Washington Mall. We would go walking or, you know the Washington Mall. We'd walk down one side, talking about the issues 
turn, walk up the other side. I will be having these almost clandestine meetings and I say, but why we can't have this in the lunchroom? No, 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 no. It's a place full of viciousness and maliciousness and hatred and pettiness and scandal. It is a really scandalous place. And if you went there to work and to get the government, the people's business done, it's not about that. It's about hurting and destroying each other. So the knives was out for me. And they told me exactly. They said, Paul, we want in the end, you don't take this personally. This was actually never about you. You are actually a little island boy that was living in Canada and he came here. This is about President Trump. So they, they tried to hurt you, to hurt him. It's not about you. I think there are going to be a lot of investigations and inquiries across time because all of these people gave President Trump advice and policy was set based on them. In fact, ran the lockdowns and the school closures that turned around and harmed a lot of people and caused a lot of death. I believe they need to be accountable. But the fact of the matter is, the decisions that they have made across the last two years and a month, because Fauci is still in the Biden administration, none of it comported with the science. We learned about three weeks after Trump lockdown that this virus was amenable to risk stratification, that your baseline risk was prognostic on your mortality, severity and mortality. That all we needed was an age risk stratified focused protection approach where we strongly protect the vulnerable and whilst you strongly protect the elderly and vulnerable, you make early treatment available, but you allow the complete rest of the low-risk society to live normally, normal lives, making reasonable precautions, not to lock down. We had no evidence that lockdown would have worked and we were seeing very early on, one month out, that the lockdowns were yeah, but how, how can Fauci not have known that? I think they knew that. So there's something other than science was at play here. And I'll tell you, I'll just say it for whoever is listening. I have been involved like Malone and, and Bhattacharya and McCullough in different legal cases where we were asked one by one to sign affidavits. People were putting, that doesn't work. Judges have told me directly Dr. Alexander, when an affidavit comes to us with your signature into Bhattacharya or McCullough alone, and the government has the weight of the Justice Department with all of the justice lawyers and the full um, uh, Secretary of Health of Humans and Services, et cetera, there on that document, you, you as a single scientist, what you all need to understand is you need to come together as a massive group, 15, 20 of you together, doctors and scientists together on one affidavit signed. When you put that in, a judge is very intimidated by that. And that is the key. We understand the wrong and we are trying to help society and humanity. And that's about it. Because we live in this world. We have children and grandchildren. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's a battle that we have. Somebody have to wage the battle. Like the truckers in Canada and the ones in America now, I am helping them scientifically because they are waging a battle that the rest of society is not. And they are correct. The science is on their side. The vaccine mandates and the emergency powers that underpin them must come down. I so appreciate your courage and what you've done so far. I really do. No, I appreciate you giving me this window and this, this podium to speak and uh, everyone that you have allowed. And uh, this is all people just need to hear us. And um, we really, a lot of wrong things. And trust me, 
they are moving again to try and lock the society down. 